0: Welcome to The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I live in Seattle, and I basically consider it my hometown at this point. My co-host, Tiffany Parks, lives abroad in Rome. She's been there now for over 15 years. And this show began in Rome when I moved abroad and lived there for just one year on Tiffany's street. But we go way back. I met her on the school bus in sixth grade. If you're curious about moving abroad or currently live abroad, Or maybe you just absolutely love Italy or love contemplating and exploring the big themes of life. Well, you've come to the right place. Don't be afraid to dig around in the archives, even as far back as episode one. We're on a journey here, and you will not regret it. Support for The Bittersweet Life comes from our listeners. This week, I want to thank Christy and Nick for your donations and your kind messages. Good luck in Italy, Nick. And Christy... Thanks for the great idea for a mini episode. If you love this show, please help pay for it. Make a one-time donation at thebittersweetlife.net or join us on Patreon for bonus episodes every month. You get that with your monthly donation. There are links in the show notes. Thank you so much for supporting the art you love. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I am joined by Liam Callanan. He's the author of four novels, including most recently Paris by the Book, and he's won plenty of awards and written for countless publications. Too many for me to actually list here. He's also in the English department at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where he is the coordinator of the PhD program in creative writing. And he was kind enough to send me Paris by the book to entertain me at the very start of this pandemic. Thank you so much for being here.
1: I'm so excited to be here.
0: It's a thrill to finally get you on. So since some people listening will have not read your book, can you give us a hint of what it's about?
1: Well, it's a book about expats, so I'm excited for the expat audience here. So it's, a, this, it's the story of a woman and her two daughters who are living on the east side of the Milwaukee, uh, very close to the lake. And the husband, the father, and the family goes missing one day. And because of a variety of clues that are left behind, including a manuscript, uh, the daughters and slowly the wife become convinced that he might, in fact, be in Paris. So off to Paris they go where they have adventures, Uh, they come across a bookshop, which mysteriously falls into their hands. And that manuscript appears to be more true to life than they could ever have imagined. But will they find him? Well, we'll have to talk and maybe read a little bit more to find out.
0: Yes, you definitely don't want to give it away. Reading this book and then looking over your website, there are things in this book that are true to your own life. There are. What elements would you say are true? There are.
1: It's tricky to talk about. Like I've always said and other authors have backed me up on this, that everybody who thinks that they're in your book is not. And everyone who doesn't think that they're in their book is. My first book, The Cloud Atlas, was set in World War II, Alaska. And my mom said, oh, my goodness, the narrator is totally you. And I said, but he's like a 78-year-old missionary priest, or also a World War II veteran. She said, but his name begins with L. <laughs> and so does yours. So I was like, And so in this book, I kind of play with that. Like, There's a writer in the family um, they live in Milwaukee. I live in Milwaukee. Uh, the writer has daughters. I have daughters, although I have three and the writer only has two. And so there's always kind of a war amongst my kids to see, you know, who was left out of the book and (laughs) who was the other one. But the truth is it's, it's very fictional. It does start with a true story, which can I, can I do a little storytelling?
0: Oh yeah, for sure. Please.
1: So it starts with the grain of truth, which is that We had just moved to Milwaukee and we had not realized everybody when we moved here said, what are you going to do in the spring? And we're like, I don't know. Spring's a beautiful season. I guess we'll sit outside and enjoy the sunshine. And people who knew better said, you're crazy. Spring is the worst season in the world in Wisconsin. You've got to get out of here. But we didn't get this advice until spring had arrived. And so we were desperate to find a way to get because, in fact, it's very cold and wet and icy and the flowers don't arrive until June. So I called up the airlines and I said, C- "Where can we go with our miles?" And I said, "How about Florida for you know Disney?" And they said, "Florida? You crazy? You don't have enough miles for that." And I said, "How about California?" They said, "No, Hawaii, no." They basically turned us down on everything. And then they finally said, "Well, would you like to go to Paris?" And I said, really, it's cheaper to go to Paris than it is to go to Florida? And they said, yes, it is. And I later discovered, as people who live in Paris in the springtime know, there's some beautiful sunny days, but it's also fairly cold and wet. It's not unlike the east side of Milwaukee. So we ended up going, and then I ended up pitching a travel article about it. And to kind of give a new twist on the Family Goes to Paris trip, I gave each of the kids a book, and I said, why don't you guys lead us around Paris? And so... My youngest got uh, the first Madeline book uh, from Ludwig Bemelmans. My middle child got uh, The Red Balloon, which is a book based on a very famous film of the same name. And then the oldest got The Adventures of Hugo Cabret, which is a graphic novel from a few years ago, which is a gorgeous book, all of them set in Paris. And we basically treated the books in Paris like a scavenger hunt. And we went around and around the city trying to find things that were in each of the books Uh, We did not find the old house covered in vines where lived 12 little girls in two straight lines, because even though many parish schools claim to be the, the original one, he made that up completely. And then on the last day of our trip, my girls were exhausted. They were really little at the time. They were absolutely exhausted. And we passed by this bookstore and we have a rule in our family that anytime you pass a bookstore, you not only can go in, but dad will buy you whatever you want. Uh, In fact, it's kind of a rule. If it's an independent bookstore, you have to buy something. So my girls knew I would be a sucker for this, and I would stop marching them all over the city. So we went into this teeny little bookstore in the Marais, and my girls went to the back of the store, plopped down, and they just treated it like a rest break. They just pulled all these books off the shelves. They flopped down on the floor. They started reading, and I looked around, and the shop was – it's not much bigger than – it looked a little bit like my office and wasn't too much bigger than It's just bookcases on all sides, and it was a little bit in disarray. And I asked the woman what was going on, and she said, you know, I have to, for various reasons, move on, and so I'm not going to be operating the shop anymore. And then she looked at me, and she looked at my daughters, and she said, you know, I had a daughter who was that young once, and she helped me here in the shop, and she used to do that exact same thing. And your daughters remind me of that. And then we talked, and I talked about being a writer in books, and she finally said, and it was joking, but it was only half joking. She said, um, well, would you like to buy the store? (laughs) <laughs> and my wife and I looked at each other, and uh, I don't know, we're both oldest children. We're, so, we're just too responsible for our own good, and we're like, no, I don't think we can. I mean, we would have lost all our money probably in six months, <laughs> but it was a long walk back to the metro after that. And so when we got home to Milwaukee, I realized to my heart that the girls, in fact, had all gotten their souvenirs from the store. They'd all bought a book at the store. I, I think many of them, they bought books they already had, but, uh, but I had not gotten a book. And I felt very badly about that until I sat down and started typing. And then I realized I had gotten a book, which is Perished by the Book. I kind of wrote my way back in there. It's a little bit of Harold in the purple crayon. Like I write wrote my place into the place I wanted to be.
0: That's pretty great. Yeah. There's that nugget in there, too, of the fact that you had your girls search out particular places from these books that they read. And your characters do that similar thing.
1: It was really amazing. One of the the another uh, seed to the story, and I, I can't actually even remember I think I put this in the book, but one day in the Marais, my littlest kind of put her hands on her hips, and she was tiny, three or four, and she said, "Daddy, I think I've been here before." I mean she was in daycare at the time, but we kept a pretty close eye on where they went in daycare, and I don't think they ever took a day trip to Paris. But uh, she had been there in the forms of these books. And I developed this grand thesis, which I realized that so many American kids, particularly in America, because um, that's where Bemelman's Madeline book sold best, those books and then this magical movie, The Red Balloon. So many American kids, in the case of the Red Balloon, and honestly the Madeline books from the 70s, 80s, or maybe even before that, 60s, 70s, 80s, that was Paris to them, and people really did travel there. And so I just thought it was an amazing place where Paris a particular sort of Paris is created for you as you walk along. And so it was really fun to kind of see how things matched and didn't match. But in the eyes of my girls, like they did not think it was odd at all that I asked them to lead us around Paris. Like, Oh yeah, we've got this dad.
0: It's a really, really great idea actually of how to engage kids in travel, which is something that Tiffany and I have talked about a lot.
1: It is great. And we did it all over. We did on large scale and small scale. I mean, some of the small scale was that we, when we would go to a museum, we would do a scavenger hunt there, and an art history professor years ago taught me the trick of go to the gift shop first, look at the postcards, and then you know what their biggest hits are. <laughs> and we would get a couple of the postcards, and then into the museum we would go. It was also fascinating for them to experience that Parisians had no idea about these books. Ludwig Bellemann's, like the Madeline books, various Parisian tour guides know that girls sometimes show up in little hats and things like that and have dolls, but otherwise nobody Nobody looks at those books in Paris. Hmm. And the Red Balloon, which is filmed in this neighborhood where no tourists go, where we visited up north of Paris, just on the northeastern corner of it, um, we had a book of pictures from stills from the film, and we were showing them to people, and people were like, what is this? They had just kind of never heard of it. And so it was, it was interesting. But like, there was this image of Paris. Paris is a place that I think tourists, it's like a lot of the energy generates it for them. So... I mean, in that movie, Monsters, Inc., all the energy of the world is generated by screams, and I think in Paris, all the energy is generated by people going, ah.
0: <laughs> it's interesting, though, to think that something that would be so shaping of how you see the city, the city itself, the people who live in the city itself don't see it through that lens at all. It's it's interesting.
1: It was utterly fascinating because it you realize that there, there are multiple layers to reality, which is one of the things that my book deals with. Like, what do we really know about a city or a place? And for that matter, what if that place is someone else's heart? We think we really know the terrain of our husband or partner or kids, but do we really know that terrain? And sometimes we don't until we're removed from it and we're in a strange city like Paris and we're looking back and we see everything so much better.
0: Yeah, one of the things that you write on your website, along with confessing that you've never lived in Paris, actually lived there, lived there, but that you feel that you know the city well, mainly in your imagination. Is that what you mean by that?
1: A little bit. I mean, I feel like I know the imaginary Paris very well because I've I've read just about... I For a year uh, around the book's publication, I tweeted a Paris reading recommendation every week. And so I feel like I know that Paris very well. I, mean, I never did live in Paris. I've visited many times. And I feel like the Paris that I got to know was one that was constantly kind of bumping up against the realities that I saw. I remember thinking... At one point, I enlisted quite a few people to research Paris, so Parisians, expats in Paris, uh, all kinds of different people. And I knew I was getting close to that. Like I had said something like the sidewalk in many places smelled of urine. And the native Parisian was like, that's absolutely not true. And the expat was like, oh, that is so true. And I was very fortunate. I was able to do a reading at the library, American Library in Paris, and they were saying, like, oh, yeah, no, this is that's very much true. But I, I knew, like, once people start disagreeing over your details, then you've got some friction there.
0: You're right in the heart of it. Well, what do you think? Do you think this is a debate we've also had on this show is 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 it OK to explore a place and have it be in this sort of dreamy realm that isn't really the truth of reality? Almost like travel gives us the the ability, the privilege, maybe to see what we want to see.
1: Again, that's a little bit what my book is about, like where it comes to that Paris exists in a dreamy, kind of fanciful place that's from their imaginations. And they move there and they get down to the really difficult work of living there and they see a whole different Paris. But the thing is that and I think this is true of many of every city, but particularly world capitals, Rome or Paris or New York City or Milwaukee, I'll add to that list. A particular place where people have generated their own idea of it before they get there. In fact, the story then is all about the collision of those realities. Someone who goes to New York and is going to be the next great comic on Saturday night live. New York is still the place where that happens, but it might not happen for them. And so the story of their time in New York is both of those realities coming together. They, if you go to Paris looking for Madeline's old house covered with fines, you're not going to find it, but that's going to be the story of that. And so I feel like, I mean, you can see it more readily in a city like Rome where the layers of history are like sediment, like you can visibly see, like here's where BC, AD, and then last hundred years. And I feel like that seems to me to be the story of it, particularly in Paris. So, I mean, in some ways, the story of Paris is always about deconstructing the, the story that comes around. And some people, I mean, I've definitely talked to audiences where are like, but I wanted more, you know, roses and Audrey Hepburn. And I was like, well, we've got that. But like one big thing in the book, I talk a lot about, and my editor at one point, I talk a lot about French frozen food because Leah, the main character, when she's she's running a bookstore, she's being a single mom while she looks for her husband to two girls. And uh, she doesn't have time. She doesn't have time to create you know gourmet meals all the time. So she goes to this frozen food store. And that's very Parisian, it turns out, like the restaurants do it. And and it's amazing frozen food. Like I've been reading online like this was amazing frozen food. So on one of my research trips to Paris, I went to one of these stores and they're, and they're gorgeously photographed. It's like it's like a cross between Trader Joe's and Tiffany's. Um, not your co-host Tiffany, but like Tiffany, the, the jewelry store. Uh, they, it's they're gorgeous. And so I went, and I bought a big armful of these things. And I brought them back to this tiny little hotel. I was saying at, and the guy was horrified and he said, what are you doing you're in Paris. Why are you eating frozen food? I said, I need it for my book. Can you make some of this for me in your little microwave? And he said, okay. And he did. And it was great. And the colors were gorgeous. And so, but again, like that's, to me, that's like this combination of realities. Like it's really beautiful and picturesque, but it's also a place where people have had difficult times. I mean, Paris has a very vexed history.
0: Yeah. And where people have to live and are busy, (laughs) you know, as far as the frozen food is concerned. Hey, it's Tiffany and Katie breaking in briefly to this conversation because, Tiffany, I've got to tell you about this new book that's about to come out that I'm so excited about. I'm just so excited about this book. Let's hear it. Okay, so this is a book you're going to want to pre-order. It's coming out in the very beginning of February. It's a memoir by Dr. Ronald Crutcher called I Had No Idea You Were Black, Navigating Race on the Road to Leadership. Let me tell you, Tiffany, you're going to love this guy. He is the president of the University of Richmond, which is basically a university that's right in the heart of the Confederacy. And he's an inheritor to the civil rights movement. He heard Martin Luther King speak as a kid. Also, he's a cellist who uh, met Coretta Scott King as a child because of his musicianship. And he lived in Germany for multiple years and is fluent in German. It is a memoir about his life, but it is also about his success as a black intellectual navigating highly charged social situations. And that's what makes this book very important, I think, and very unforgettable. Very timely. Very timely. In fact, I wanted to read you a little something he wrote that's in this book that I thought I would highlight to you because it seems so on point right now, given how polarized things currently are. Okay. So this is from the book. Being kind to others, no matter how difficult they are, is a skill that I have honed over many years. Early in my career, I simply blocked out troublesome people. I tried to imagine that they did not exist. I avoided them when I could, and if I could not, I interacted with them only in the most impersonal ways. Not a great strategy. Over the years, I've learned that you will sometimes need to rely on difficult personalities. And even the most challenging person eventually responds to kindness. Hmm. That is hard to do. (laughs) I was just (laughs) thinking when he was describing the first part, I was like, hmm, you know, that sounds like something that most of us are tempted to do. Mm -hmm. It's definitely much more of a challenge to go his route. And uh, that's impressive. I can't say that I'm there yet. Well, I think you need to read his book. He is not a political left or political right. He's a political centrist. I think you personally need to get this book. I had no idea you were black, navigating race on the road to leadership. It's coming out February 9th. I'm very excited to read it personally. And uh, you can find a link in the show notes if you're interested. Thanks for the tip, Katie. Uh, I felt like another one of the themes of the book or like one of the central tensions of it was um, freedom versus responsibility Mm. without giving anything away. You see that a little bit with um, your main character acting as a single mom, but also kind of wanting to have some freedom to be herself also. And really the characters all seem like they're a little tense with how responsible do they need to be? How free can they be?
1: That's a really, you know.
0: No one's brought up
1: that that's why I was so desperate to come on this show, Katie, because no (laughs) one's asked such a brilliant question before. I I think that's really great. Yes, I agree with that. I mean, I think the characters are all trying to balance freedom and responsibility in different ways. And they frequently are trying to escape responsibility, which, again, kind of gets back to that earlier dichotomy we were talking about with Paris. Like, is it a place to escape to or is it a place to kind of live and work and And can you do both of those things at once? But it's definitely a challenge. And I think that, um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, and I think even the kids in the book feel it too. At one point, the older child, who's nothing like my older child, says something like she feels like she's the parent in the family, which she is in in a crucial, at a crucial moment in the book, like she's in charge. And I think that's something that we all wrestle with to a different degree. That, that That's a great question.
0: Well, you mentioned that you're the oldest child uh, in your family, so that you, part of that would not allow you to buy a bookstore in Paris and just throw the security behind. But do you have this tension of freedom and responsibility within your own life?
1: Wow. All right. Then he adjusted. Uh, you'll have to tell your listeners. He adjusted himself in his chair and kind of looked... <laughs> longingly out the window of his office. Pensive, yes. Yes, pensive. I do. You know, I think that uh, I remember once years ago when my oldest child was in fifth grade, maybe they had like, take your father to work day or not take your father, but take um, it was like, what do you what does your parent do? And so somebody's mom was who's a policeman came in and she gave them you know how you are a policeman and someone else, and this was going on for weeks, and someone else was a banker and someone was a fireman. All there were all these cool jobs basically. My daughter was despairing that I wasn't going to be able to come in. I said, "Being a writer is a cool job," so she said, "Okay." And so, all the other parents are dressed up. I put on a coat and tie, and she was horrified. And so, when it came time for questions, she raised her hand. And she, her question was, why are you so normal here and so crazy at home? <laughs> and, I was like, and I was like, I didn't know I was that crazy. But I definitely, I think the artistic side of me definitely likes to kind of let loose. And I like to dance. And I like to have fun. And I like to joke around and have a good time. But I'm also acutely aware of, like, I'm a dad. I need to kind of go punch my ticket. Um, even as a writer, I feel that, too. Like, I'm not comfortable unless... I start each day sitting down at the desk, and it's taken me a long time to realize that everything I write that day isn't necessarily going to be terrific, but I just got to show up, and that's part of being the responsible part. But I, that's really interesting. I had not thought about it that way. So many people have said to me, like, if you bought that story, it would have totally come and helped. And I said, yeah, but we, we needed more than your help. We needed your life savings. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, yeah. Sometimes the dream is uh, bigger than what you can actually afford. Yes, Certainly. yes. I don't know if you remember, because I know you've been a listener to the show for some time. But Tiffany, in part, moved to Rome because of the movie A Room with a View. I was just thinking about this with your book and your characters, with them being kind of motivated to explore the city with books. And I often think about how much movies and books control what we actually do or aspire to do. I don't know. I just wondered if you had a comment on that, because... I don't know, something I've been pondering a lot lately is how much is our own original ideas and how much of it is being driven by the fiction of others?
1: Uh, we are in this long slipstream of storytelling. And I, it's not that nothing is a new story, but I feel like we're always kind of unraveling the stories that came before us. I believe that anyway. I shouldn't use we so much. I'm always kind of following the substream of other authors and things that come before. I certainly am motivated to explore places that I've seen in books and movies. So for me, the germ of this book was The the Red Balloon, which is this gorgeous 33-minute film from 1957, I think, which is the shortest script ever to win an Academy Award. I think it's like 30 words in the whole thing. But just seeing it, and I remember being struck as a child because there are photos in the book that the place really existed. And I feel like this happens with a lot of people in the books. And it's not just a matter of that scavenger hunt I talked about before, but there's something about participating in a mutual dream, which is what is so exciting about Being a writer, it's challenging, too, but it's very exciting to have people enter into your dream and kind of take residence in your book and be like, I know there I like I lived like I just had somebody write me and say, like, my daughter's named Daphne and she lives in Paris, which. And so one of the characters in the book is named Daphne. This is why we have the. Thing in the beginning, where it says any resemblance of persons living or dead is completely coincidental. But (laughs) I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I feel like I completely understand that draw because I think it's wanting to be part of that larger story, but also to kind of experience the emotional terrain as well as the physical terrain. I have a great room with a view story. I don't know if it'll fit in the show, and we'll have to ask my wife to tune out at this part. My high school girlfriend and I went to see Room with the View. Boy, this is really dating me. <laughs> we went to see the movie back when it came out a million years ago. People <laughs> should see it. It's a wonderful film. And then she bought me a keepsake book, The Forster's Novel, and she put a picture of us inside the book. Years pass, and I get a call from the Glendale, California Public Library who said, there's this big box of books that was just donated to us, and we think that you might want one of them back because it seems to be inscribed to you. And my mom had donated like all these books from her house, and some librarian had actually gone through, found the photo, Googled my name, and mailed the book back. So Room of the View, there's an example of how books do control our destinies. We didn't marry that girlfriend. She's doing very well on her own. But uh, we were always going to go to Florence. We never quite managed to. We w- each went on our own at different times. But that, once upon a time, that was not the plan.
0: That is a lovely story, though. I love that it came back to you too. That's yeah, that's great. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Yeah, I've been. Um, I've mentioned it on the show briefly, but I've been wor- working on a m- very brief memoir that hopefully will one day be published. But it's hinged around the filmography of Tom Cruise. Yes. Yeah.
1: I think it's so brilliant. I am lining up cash, waving in my fist for that book. I think it's so great.
0: Oh, thanks. Well, you know, (laughs) I got to finish writing it first and then I have to find somebody who wants to sell it and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I was just contemplating that this morning because the section I was writing was all about how oftentimes as a teenager, if you find a movie that you like or a book that you like, you will do it Over and over and over and over again. You will be at that theater watching that film Mm -hmm. with every bit of money that you have. Mm -hmm. This only happened to me with a Tom Cruise film once in my childhood, which was for the movie Days of Thunder. And I only saw it twice, but within 24 hours. (laughs) So something about that movie struck a chord in 1990 when it came out. But I, I really have been contemplating how much those rituals of reading a book over or watching a movie over become more of a like larger meditation on what, what we want from our life. What do we see in a film that speaks to us, you know, that tells us a larger story of who we want to be. And I have not figured out how to explain it. So if you have any ideas, please.
1: Uh, (laughs) I think, you know, part of it for me is I always say that I'm not the only one who says this, that readers complete a book and I do feel like that we are creating our own texts when we read a text. And so it's not just that our imagination's creating something, but we're also inserting ourselves into that life. So in the red balloon, I'm the boy who like has that red balloon, and, and Madeline, I'm the one who's looking at those kids go off to school each day and kind of wondering where they're off to and how they're going to rescue the dog. And you know, with you with Days of Thunder, I don't know if you see yourself behind the wheel or on the sides, or in both places at once. But it's still like you're completing that text for yourself and extending it that much further. You know, sometimes I talk about in the fiction workshops I teach that there are only a certain number of stories, or there's a certain number of ur-texts, and whether it's somebody goes, somebody loses something, is one of my favorite ways of expressing that, which is like the key story. Somebody loses something, and then the book is always about how to find that how to find that thing and I often think that readers whether explicitly or not come to books looking for something that they didn't know that they'd lost I don't know Days of Thunder as a text well enough to say <laughs> what you might have lost and have found and but um but you'll find it by God but I mean that's why you're writing because you're going to find your way there
0: mm-hmm. yeah it's interesting too in total contrast you as we record this you haven't heard this yet but when we air this it will have just played but we recently had Nancy Pearl on the show, oh. Nancy Pearl, American's Librarian, yeah. giving us Christmas recommendations. And one of the things that she said was that she's very wary. She will reread a book again, but she's very wary about rereading the ones that she really loved, particularly if they're from a different time period in her life. Like, for instance, she tried to go back. I can't remember what book she talked about, but she tried to go back and read a book that she had loved in high school and found that she was not so not that person anymore that rereading it kind of tinged oh, her love for the book. Interesting. And she had kind of wished that she'd left it on the shelf frozen in her teen experience with it.
1: That's really interesting. Well, I hope she really liked my first book, and so I hope she doesn't go back to that one and not like it again. <laughs> <laughs> I gobble up all of her reading recommendations, by the way. And I love her reading rule, which is 100 minus your age is how far you have to get into a book before you can put it down. So once you turn 100 years old, you can judge it by its cover. Yes. There are different books to come to at different times. And then certain things, certain texts you can encounter in different ways. And they reflect different paths that you've taken at those different moments. So when I experience those Paris books that formed me, I'm very much kind of looking at the child that I was then. And now when I look at it, it's hard to experience those texts without the filter of, like, all those years passing. Like, it's, it's hard to see them fresh.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. All right, so just a couple more questions because we're running out of time. Oh, this
1: isn't a special three-hour episode? <laughs> no,
0: not this time. <laughs> next time. Next book. <laughs> Which, actually, that brings me to the, a good question. Uh, the next book you're working on. And I believe, I, I may have gotten this wrong, but I believe you found the show because you are working on a book about Rome.
1: I am working on a book about Rome, so, and that's been a really interesting process too. Because well, it's been harder to visit Rome. I mean, there's another place where I've been a bunch of times, but I by no means express like kind of having lived there. But it's another place that has another kind of formative experience in my mind. I I can't tell too much of the story. I don't want. It's like one of those things, like trying to capture a cloud. Like the, once you grab it, it kind of goes wispy on you. All those things, but. Um, I'm definitely wrestling with it. I I seem to have a wanderlust in my fiction. My wife once said that she thought I became a writer because I wanted to go to New York City all the time. And that's true. But I also wanted to travel. So my books have gone to Alaska and California and Paris. And maybe uh, we'll see what happens to the Rome book, Rome 2. But uh, I'm an armchair traveler when I'm a reader and I'm a desk chair traveler when I'm a writer.
0: Boy, I could leave it with that statement. That's fantastic.
1: I'm just trying to stick the landing here, so.
0: I know, so good. Okay, <laughs> we'll leave it there. I'm going to ask you some other questions, just personally, but we'll leave it there anyway. So the so the book is. I'm a Scorpio. <laughs> <laughs> Tax information. <Yeah. laughs> so the book is called Paris by the Book, and you've generously offered to give away two copies. Yes. To our listeners. So for those of you who are not with us on social media yet, look for The Bittersweet Life on whichever social media you like the best, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and we'll do some giveaways for these two copies. And since I'm going to be the one mailing them, I'm willing to send them internationally. Wow. Those of you who are overseas, please apply. You're also eligible. So Paris by the Book and thank you so much for doing this.
1: This was such an honor.
0: And for sending me this book.
1: Oh, such an honor. It really, it's, a, it's a wonderful to talk with you. And it's one of such great questions. They kind of talk about completing the text for me. I was realizing new things about what i written, which I hadn't done without your reading of it. So I really appreciate that.
0: All right. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Talk to you next week. Bye. Need more show? Bonus episodes are released every single month at patreon.com slash the bittersweet life podcast. For as little as $5 a month, you'll get to hear even more. You'll find a link in the show notes. And if you jump on board at the $50 level, you get to dictate what topic we cover. For example, one Patreon subscriber had us do an entire show on cuteness. Become the director for $50 a month and support the show you love at the same time. Thanks for listening. Tell all your friends, and we'll talk to you next week.